Good afternoon, everybody. This is Debbie Montgomery Johnson coming to you from Stand Up and Speak Up. And I've got a very special guest today. My guest is Mr. David Medansky coming to us from Arizona. David, welcome to Stand Up and Speak Up. Uh, thanks, Debbie, for having me as a guest today. I'm really excited about you being here today because what you talk about resonates with my life. And I love it. Your book, I'm going to show right off the bat, called Stop Dieting, Start Thinning the newest of your books. And I'm not a, I'm not a big plug on, you know, this is not a, a commercial podcast. This is an informational podcast. I do a lot about, you know, beware and be aware. And with my company, Benfo Complete, I've taken on the role of educating folks about they're not diabetes necessarily, but about how to live with diabetics, how to live with family members that are having problems. And uh, it's important. It's really important to me. Uh, so anyway, I like to find coaches, people that have lived real life experiences that are not just, as you would say, commercializing their book because of a product, because of what they espouse to be true. Um, you've lived this cycle, and we're just going to jump right into your story. So would you please tell me, David, why did you start on your journey of thinning, not losing weight? Uh, sure. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I was fit and trim. However, like most of us, life gets in the way. And I stopped uh, exercising and started eating more convenient foods and fast foods with family obligations and work responsibilities. And then at age 61, in July of 2016, my doctor told me based on my lab results and being fat, I had a 95% chance for a fatal heart attack. So he gave me two options. He said, dude, lose weight or find a new doctor. And he strongly encouraged me to find a new doctor because he'd been after me for eight years to lose the weight. And if I did lose weight on a diet, I gained it all back. And sometimes I gained even more. So this time was different. Uh, the light bulb went off, and during the next four months, I shed 50 pounds, 25% of my total body weight. More importantly, I kept it off. <clears throat> and what I did is I changed my eating habits and lifestyle. And that's the important thing. And so last year in June of uh, 2022, at age 68, I actually hiked up Mount Kilimanjaro. So when people tell me they're too old as an excuse to eat healthier and get back in being physically fit and, you know, having more energy and feeling better. I just look at them and say, no, you're not too old because I'm exhibit A. Well, congratulate, I congratulate you on, on Mount Kilimanjaro. And I think I, when we talked one time before, I mentioned that my good friend Werner Berger had done that in his 80s. And uh, and he said, Deb, you do that trip. You're going to do that trip. And I'm thinking, no, it's way too cold there for me. And he goes, honestly, it's not that cold because of all the, you know, you're warm while you're doing it. And I say. Like, I'll leave it to you guys. <laughs> no, he's right. Um, it's not as cold as people um, initially think it is because you are dressed in layers. And a lot of times you're just taking layers off because you are getting overheated and getting warm because of the physical movement. So I have a question in this adventure to look to get thin or, you know, to get healthy, really, because um, I know you're you don't like the word diet. And what it called for you? Uh, who are you known by? What are you known by? The uh, diet contrarian. 
<laughs> the anti-diet advocate. Basically, because, you know, diets are frustrating and they suck. And most of them are temporary, extreme, hard to stick with, and they are potentially dangerous to your health. Well, and I love, I read somewhere in your book about diet. It's a four-letter word, but it's got the word die in it. Correct. And, That's from Richard Simmons back in the 1970s. In the day, and then fatal has the word fat in it. Exactly, yeah. So not that you can't die thin, because you can. I've had friends that have you know, passed away and they've been really thin. But did you do it on your own? Did you... Because a lot of people say, well, I, I can't do it because, because, you know, I'm fighting against my family. I'm fighting against anybody else. Who helped you on this journey, if anybody? Well, no, I had a lot of help. In fact, um, the way I lost my weight is no longer available. I was on HCG, which is a hormone from pregnant women. And it's an injection. You're on 550 calories per day for six weeks. And then you're off it for six weeks and then you're back on it for six weeks. And it tricks the body into burning fat instead of muscle. If you're on 550 calories a day without the HCG, then your body starts burning muscle, which is detrimental to your health. Uh, the FDA has no longer uh, approved it, so it's no longer available. I had six other friends that lost weight the same way. Every one of them gained all their weight back, some even more. The difference being is when I lost the weight, I changed my eating habits and lifestyle. I started reading the books from the 70s on, you know, that I had from being when I was fit and trim by Paul and Patricia Brack, Jack LaLanne, Richard Simmons, William Duffy, Sugar Blues. And then I started reading books that are current authors. And I realized the authors back in the 70s were advocating basic principles, how to live a healthy lifestyle and eat healthy. Today's authors, for the most part, are advocating their own products or their own programs. And it makes it sound like if you don't follow their programs or supplements, you're going to fail. And that's absolutely false. So I came up with what I call the nine golden rules of weight loss for people who love to eat. And when people hear these nine golden rules, they're like, well, I know that. And my answer is, I understand you know it. Are you doing it? And most people say, well, I may do a few, but no, I'm not doing it. I said, well, that's where I help people get to the underlying issues. If we know what to do and we're not doing it, why not? So when people start looking at some of the underlying issues and start realizing, it helps them. They find that if you have an accountability partner, you have a 90% probability of succeeding in anything that you're doing. So that's why it's so important with having a weight loss journey that you have someone to be accountable to. Did anybody in your family, were, were any of the family accountability partners? Because I know um, when when Lou started, uh, Lou Montgomery, my late husband, when he started the company, actually when we got married, Lou was 6'4 and 220 pounds. We were both Air Force officers at the time. So we had some you know guidelines we had to keep as far as our weight goes. But over the 28 years, Lou gained and lost, boy, I bet 1,200 pounds, you know, because every baby I had, he would gain the 40 pounds and then I would lose it and then he would keep it. And then I wouldn't eat and thinking that if I ate less then he would, he would eat less. Well, that just left more for him. And so he was one of those guys that knew everything about what he should do, but he didn't do it. And, and even the lap band surgery, I think we talked about that. He had the lap band surgery and he didn't like it because he couldn't get through a steak without it getting cold. So he said to hell with that, excuse my French. And he had it reversed. 
And Lou had a massive heart attack in 2010, and he died within half an hour. I kept thinking all those years was like, I, you know, even family members, well, he should do this. He should lose weight. He should da, 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 da. And I wouldn't say anything because I didn't want to be the nag. I just figured choices, choices, choices. So an accountability partner may or may not be a, a spouse or a family member, but it helps to have their support. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the accountability partner doesn't even have to be on a weight loss journey with you or know anything about your weight loss journey. All they need to ask you is a few questions and the call should last maybe five minutes, 10 at the most. And it's real simple. I outlined it in the book. The question is, what did you say you were going to do? Did you do it? It's yes or no, no excuses. If you did it, great. If not, why not? What did you learn from it and how we improve it next week? It's not to, you know, justify or rationalize. It's real simple. Either you did or you didn't. A lot of my clients, what they find is, especially with drinking water, they start drinking more water because they know they have to be accountable to me and they have to talk to me once a week. So it's like, oh, you know, I, I was going to, you know, not drink the water. And then I realized I have to talk to you. So I, I started drinking more water. And it's just becoming aware of it until it becomes a habit so that you're not thinking about it anymore. And again, that's the first golden rule is to drink more pure water. Well, and it's interesting that with that rule, though, goes the thinking part. It's purposeful because I was drinking a lot of fluids. And in my case, you're going to die with this because it was a Diet Pepsi. And I'm thinking, OK, so David's thinking you shouldn't be drinking Diet Pepsi. It's the aspartame. So what did I do today? I mean, the last couple of weeks I've been cutting back, but I went and I looked at, is there actually aspartame in the Diet Pepsi? Yes, there is. Is there aspartame in the Diet 7-Up? Yes, there is. And then my next thought was, Google what diet sodas don't have aspartame. I don't know if there are any or not, but then I'm thinking, drink your water first. If you drink your water, then maybe you can have one diet soda because you have to wean yourself off. We're not like, stop this now, right? You don't want to go cold turkey on stuff. No. And that's what I tell clients. Look, if you're drinking two or three sodas or diet sodas a day, can you reduce it down to one or two, then maybe to a half so that you're gradually getting off of it? I never advocate going cold turkey on anything. Uh, sometimes people want to do that way. And if they're able to, great. If not, don't beat yourself up. Uh, it's interesting I have a client in France who's a nutritionist and she knows what to do. And I'm her accountability partner because she says, I need an accountability partner, even though I know what to do. And she gave me a great analogy uh, using milk as a story. So we'll use diet Pepsi. Would you wash your clothes in diet Pepsi? No. Okay. So why would you put that into your body? Because our bodies are 60 to 70% water, not the soda or diet soda or fruit juices or milk. Um, so if you're not going to put your clothes and wash it in milk or diet Pepsi or a soda, why would you put that into your body? Because the water is used to flush out the toxins from your body and clean your body and keep it hydrated. You said that about animals too. Would you feed your, your cat diet Pepsi? No. Yeah, or your dog? No, of course not. 
So why are you putting it into your body? Just because. Exactly. Well, we see the commercials, the marketing, you know, we see the, the thin, healthy people, you know, drinking the sodas and diet soda. Now it's gotten to the point where they're not even showing thin and healthy people. They're showing average people who are overweight, enjoying the sodas and enjoying the, you know, food that they're pushing. Um, in the 1960s, the average male weighed 162 pounds. Today, the average male weighs 198 pounds. And the same for women. They weigh about 30 pounds more than what we weighed in the 1960s. So if you look at pictures from the 60s and 70s of people on the beach, you won't find too many overweight or fat people. If you go there today, it's just about everybody. 72% of the U.S. adult population is overweight, of which 42% are clinically obese. Well, and I started thinking about it in our age group, and I heard you interviewed one time talking about this. When we were little, our moms always said, finish what's on your plate. You can't leave the table until your plate's clean. Well, now we're in our 60s, and that mentality, what did that do to us? Well, back in the 60s when we were eating, it was healthy foods. We didn't have all the convenient foods and fast foods. Uh, a TV dinner is something you threw in the oven, not the microwave. Today, you got the drive-thrus, you know, McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, pick up a bucket of, you know, fried chicken, uh, order a pizza, you know, be delivered or take it out or get a frozen meal and throw it in the microwave. So we're not eating as healthy as we were back then. Not only that, the nutritional density is 30% less now in our fruits and vegetables than it was back in the 60s. You've talked a lot about scientifically engineered foods. Can you explain that? Yeah, our food is actually being scientifically engineered to optimize our cravings for fat, salt, sugar, and texture. Um, Howard Moskowitz worked in the food industry for 30 years. He's the one that came up with the different varieties of Prego spaghetti sauce. He's worked with Campbell's soups for their different variety of soups, Pringles potato chips, Dr. Pepper variety. So when Lay's potato chips says, bet you can't eat just one, it's not a dare, it's a fact. And Oreo cookies are more addicting than cocaine. I heard that. So imagine that a cookie is more addicting than an illegal drug. Because it's what tripping something in the brain to, to want more of it or. Yeah. It's the chemicals they add the sugar and the different chemicals they add uh, to the food. Uh, highly processed food has a lot of chemicals in it. And then there's manufactured foods and manufactured foods are not made by nature. They're made in a lab by a person in a lab coat. So it's all chemical. So in the 1990s, the average grocery store had about 15,000 different items on their shelf. Today, it's over 50,000. Now, I don't know about you, Debbie. I haven't heard that many new fruits, vegetables, nuts, or berries being discovered in that time period. No. So what is it? Well, it's all the processed and manufactured foods. I mean, look at the Impossible Worker, Beyond you know, Meat, all those fake foods out there. Uh, look at the different variety of uh, Tostitos, Doritos, you know, potato chips. You just go down the aisles in the middle of the grocery store, and it's all what I call edible products, because a lot of it has no nutritional value, yet it's addicting. So you're eating a lot of empty calories, and your body is being tricked into wanting more because of how it affects the brain. Well, I, and for me, it's sensory overload. I shop. I'm so predictable. 
I know exactly what I'm going to buy. And actually during COVID, I did a lot of online shopping. It made it a whole lot easier for me because I would just go to the buy again and typically yeah. pretty good. And I took a, I took a, I did a challenge for the company last week where I took a picture of my refrigerator and I, checked, <laughs> I said, look at your refrigerator. And mine is actually quite, quite cleaned up, but it was very bright. It reds and yellows and oranges and blues and, you know, all those really good stuff. And I, and I teased because I, I did an article a couple of years ago where I said, you could tell a generation by the refrigerator. And I was oh, like, exactly. yeah. I'm at my mother's fridge. Well, my mom is 88 and she has saved everything that you can imagine in these little bitty containers. Well, they, she grew up in, you know, the thirties and forties and that scarcity. And then she had four children and would buy a lot of stuff. And so everything's packed in. And by the time you get to something in the back, it's molded. <laughs> and my poor dad was like, gosh, dad, we got to keep that fridge cleaned up. Mine is just the opposite. I keep it. I'm extraordinarily careful about what I put in that fridge. My husband doesn't like, I've remarried. My husband doesn't like leftovers. So we have very little extra stuff. My daughter, who's in her thirties, has a combination of those two. Uh, but I've also noticed that, especially since you and I've been talking, is that I'm more mindful of what I'm actually putting into my body. I've always been careful about everybody else's, but mine, and you and I have talked about this because chocolate M&Ms is one of my favorites. I don't need a whole bag. I need a handful and I get it with nuts. So at least I'm rationalizing, I'm getting some protein, but what I heard you on an interview once this was with uh, Mr. Kane. What's his first name? Lost his name. Oh, Dean Kane. Dean Kane. And Dean asked you the question, chocolate, you like it? I love it. Eat it? Rarely. Why? Because it's not healthy for you. Unless it's dark chocolate, the cat cow that's 72% or higher. I actually have a protein drink and I throw in 100% organic cat cow in there. Okay. Cacao, which is a form of cocoa, it's just a different process, same bean, uh, is actually very healthy for you. It's an anti-oxidant. Um, and among other nutritional value. Uh, the thing is, for me, I haven't had an M&M since July of 2016 because it's addicting. And if I touch one, I'm like an alcoholic. I won't stop. And when I ate M&Ms, I would go through a pound bag and still want more. I would go through a whole canister of Pringles potato chips and still want more. So I just don't touch those things. Now, I do enjoy a piece of chocolate cake every once in a while. But instead of eating the whole piece, I'd eat maybe a sliver of it. And then it'll last me two or three nights instead of one night. Um, I'll have a scoop of ice cream instead of a whole pint or even a half a gallon. I used to eat a half a gallon of uh, Breyers mint chocolate chip in one sitting and not think anything of it. So I just became very much aware of not only what I was putting into my mouth, but how much, also when and why. And when you start looking at why you're eating certain things? Are you eating because you're socializing? Are you emotional? Is it comfort food? Are you thinking of it as food as fuel for your body? Then you start looking at food in a different way. And then you have to look at the ingredients because they've changed the formulas for a lot of the foods. The Gatorade back in the 70s has a different formula than what it is today. They've added extra chemicals because it's cheaper. So it's not the same Gatorade that the athletes were drinking back in the 70s and 80s. 
it's all different. Uh, a lot of the food, if you look at the ingredients and, in, in, you know, ketchup, it's a lot more chemicals added. So people don't look at the ingredients when they read a nutritional fact label on the product. Most people look at the calories, sometimes the serving size, sometimes the sodium, sometimes the fat, the sugar content. Very rarely do people actually go down and look at the ingredients, which is the very fine print. Well, why do you think they put it in fine print? Because they don't want you to know what's in there. And it's tough though. I mean, I, I'm, I'm one of those people. I, I'll look at, I'll look at the calorie content. I'll look at the sugar content. I'll look at the salt, the potassium, but I don't understand what all the other extra stuff is. And, and I think you said that once, if, if it's in more than three sentences or whatever, forget it. But it's, it's what's at the beginning of the, of the ingredients, right? It's the most important right. things at the beginning. Yeah. yeah now here, here's, a, yeah, the, the, the most, uh, the first ingredient has the most in it of the product. But here, here's a way they manipulate with the marketing because the food industry and the weight loss industry pay psychologists and marketing experts millions and millions of dollars to manipulate the public into buying their products. So at the grocery store, if you look at some of the packages of spaghetti, it'll say zero sodium, zero grams of fat, uh, zero sugar. And you're thinking, oh, this must be healthy. Well, what they're not telling you is it's 44 grams of a simple carbohydrate, not a complex carbohydrate, because carbohydrates get a bad rap. There's a difference between a simple carbohydrate and a complex. Well, 44 grams of a simple carbohydrate is way too much for your body, but that's what's in spaghetti, but they don't put it on the front of the package. Same thing with anything low fat. People think, oh, low fat's healthy because it's low fat. No, it's got added sugar to it. I was just talking to a client this morning explaining why whole, fill, whole milk yogurt's healthier than the low fat. If you look at the sugar content, low fat versus whole milk, the whole milk has less sugar in it because the low fat, they add the sugar to it. When I thought about that, because I've heard you talking about how calories are different, obviously, um, explain between an apple and a Hershey bar. Yeah, an apple, medium-sized apple is anywhere from 90 to 100 calories. However, it takes your body 25 calories to digest and process it. So it's a net of 75 calories, plus it has all the phytonutrients and nutritional value. A Hershey bar is about 125 calories, has no nutritional value, and are empty calories. So there's a big difference between the quality of calories, and that's one of the myths, calories in versus calories out. No. It's the quality. You can eat a whole pint of blueberries or blackberries or raspberries. It's about 100 calories. Very filling. Most people won't eat a whole pint, but that's what I'm trying to get at. You know, a lot of people for a quick lunch will have a soda or a diet soda and a Hershey bar or a Snickers bar. Well, it's 250 calories, no nutritional value. Now yeah. your body's in starvation mode. So now it's fighting like heck to keep the weight on because you haven't given it the right fuel and our bodies are designed to survive. Let's talk about that starvation mode though. Cause I know with me, I lost 50 pounds in my early twenties, mid twenties when I was going into the air force. And I think I told you about that story of, of the scale and how the scale lies. Uh, yeah. And I had, I lost that weight because I really wanted to get in the air force. That was my goal. And when I went to the recruiters and the scale went up and up and up, I about freaked out until I turned around <laughs> and saw his foot on the scale. 
it killed me. I'm so afraid of getting on the scale. When I do, even though my daughter says, mom, it's just a number. If my number goes up a few pounds and it did during COVID, then I go into that, oh, guess I can't eat. Can't, can't eat today. What does that do to my body? What's my body saying to me at that point when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to drink a little, but I'm not going to eat today. Well, now your body's going to want to eat and now it's going to keep the weight on because you haven't given it the right fuel, the right nutrition. So you're better off eating a little bit than not anything at all. Because it thinks it's starving, right? Exactly. And that's what they call starvation mode. And that's why people who are in a calorie deficit for losing weight, that type of a diet, uh, rarely are able to keep it off. And a lot of times with the new year resolutions, people will start going to the gym and exercising and they're eating healthier. And after three weeks to get on the scale and the scale hasn't moved and they're frustrated. And that's when they quit. And I had this happen with a client where after three weeks of doing everything, the scale wasn't moving. I, his name was Dave also. I said, Dave, are you exercising more? He goes, yeah, I'm walking five miles a day on this, you know, Fitbit watch and riding his bike. And I said, well, how do your clothes feel? He goes, oh, they're loose. In fact, people are asking me if I'm losing weight. However, the scale is not saying. I said, don't go by the scale. Go by how, you know, your clothes fit and how much energy you're feeling and your mental, you know, clarity. So there's a lot of other indicators of being healthy other than a number on the scale. And then people will look at a BMI, uh, body mass index. And that's an inaccurate way of gauging. Um, the mathematician Adolf Quintlet, who developed the formula for it, never intended it to be used as an individual indicator for health because the BMI doesn't distinguish between a pro athlete and a couch potato. So you, you have to look at the body fat, which you have to look at also everything in total. And again, like you said, a thin person or a skinny person isn't necessarily healthy. You don't know if they have a drug problem, if they smoke a lot of cigarettes, if they're an alcoholic, if they have other issues going on that medically, you know, keep them thin. So uh, there's a lot of ways to be healthy and a lot of ways to be unhealthy. And you don't know by looking at someone on the outside, what's going on in the inside. So of your, of your principles, and, and the book, again, is called Stop Dieting, Start Thinning, and I, I really like it. And you sent me the companion, the moral of the story is, what great stories. And they're not just weight loss or weight reduction stories. They're life stories. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh, this this really applies to such and such or something else or somebody else. And, and, and I love it. And so one of the stories you talked about, and this is very interesting for me coming from an air force background is about the airline pilot. Yeah. You talk about that. Cause I know people get distressed when they, you know, are doing so good on the diet and then have a piece of chocolate cake and fall off. Exactly. And then when they fall off, they say, well, I broke it. So why bother? Um, the airplane story is interesting. Is If you go from LA to New York or vice versa, and you're off one degree, you'll be off 150 miles from your destination. And most airplanes, they are on autopilot and the autopilot's adjusting either 90 to 95% of the time. So look at your weight loss journey as being on uh, autopilot. So you're always course correcting. So if you deviate or indulge when you shouldn't, just start over and, and get back on course. So it's not going to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. Everybody has days where they're going to indulge. The whole idea is to keep a positive mental attitude and not beat yourself up. And that's one of the other nine principles is to think positive, 
because in doing research for the book, I learned that 80% of our thoughts are negative. So imagine if we turned it around, made 80% of our thoughts positive, what a difference it would make. The other thing is the stories in the moral of the story is they are stories uh, with life lessons that can be applied to different aspects of your life. I just took those lessons and applied it to eating healthy. And one of my favorite ones is the pot roast story where a young lady's hosting a, a dinner party and she makes a pot roast. And one of the guests says, oh, this is a great pot roast. Can I get the recipe? And the host says, sure, writes it down. The guest looks at it and says, why do you cut the ends of the pot roast off? And the host says, I don't know. That's how my mom taught me. So the next day the host calls her mom and says, mom, why do we cut the ends of the pot roast off before we cook it? And her mom says, I don't know. That's how your grandmother taught me. So she's curious. She calls her grandma and says, grandma, why do we cut the ends of the pot roast off when we cook it? And the grandmother thinks for a minute and she says, oh, because when I was first married, the pot I had to cook the pot roast was too small. So I had to cut the ends off. So we have to look at why we eat a certain way or certain things, because I call it dietary duplication, which is a term a friend of mine, John Canada uh, coined, which means that we're taught how to eat that way. So when you start looking at why you eat a certain way, you may want to question it and rethink it and then create new habits. We've talked about that a lot in my company because many of my clients who have diabetes uh, and neuropathy, it's, I figure it's a generational thing because grandma cooked it one way, mom cooked it this way. You're giving it to the 12 year olds who now are not, you know, 85 pounds, they're 200 pounds and they're going to carry it on. And those kids are getting diabetes at a younger age. So it is about that mindset. It is about, you know, how did we do things? And I, it just cracked me up the way you're talking about the pot roast, because here's a, here's the thing. My dad, who's 93, every Christmas comes and he wants his grandfather's fudge. For 10 years, we've been trying to duplicate his grandfather's fudge. In the recipe, it says stir, 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 stir. And we've been doing that and it always fails. So this past year, I did a little bit of research on fudge making. You are not supposed to stir consistently during the fudge making process. <laughs> like Dad, we are always going to fail. Besides that, it's like eating. It's like in, oh my gosh, taking a, a syringe and just sugar right in the veins. Yeah, pure, pure sugar. Pure sugar in the veins. And I was like, we probably shouldn't be doing this anyway. Um, yeah, what, what they found also in doing research with kids is because of the fast foods, the McDonald's, the other foods that they're eating that are highly processed and manufactured, that fruits and vegetables taste bitter and sour to them. So when they get off the processed foods and start eating more fresh fruits and vegetables, then their taste buds change and everything starts uh, tasting better. I see that with grandchildren, you know, two have been brought up with only, well, not only, but minimal extra stuff, but a lot of fruits and vegetables, avocados and those things. And they're very willing to eat that. The other two, not as not as much, which is interesting because they live in Hawaii where there's a lot of fresh fruits. And so it was a mindset change to say, okay, guys, you know, instead of getting the ice cream dots today, let's get a banana. I mean, I remember when my kids came to Florida and saw bananas grown on a tree, they about <laughs> freaked. They're like, we didn't know bananas came from a tree. Grandma's tree. Um, but I this past year when I've been trying to move things along with the company in a different way, it's like, 
how do I recreate the recipes that I love? Because I, I don't like to eat a lot of cookies, but I love to do my baking. I love to bake. It's my stress baking. Yeah. How can I change my cookies so that they don't have as much sugar in them, but they still taste fun for the family like that likes it? So the substitutes and stuff, I don't know if you've done a lot of research on the on sugar substitutes and whatever, but what do you feel about substituting things like that? Oh, absolutely. Um, honey is a great substitute for sugar because it's a sweetener, as long as it's the raw honey. Uh, stevia is a great uh, sweetener. You have to be careful because in the grocery stores here, it'll say stevia, but it's a blend. And sometimes it'll say stevia blend. Uh, you have to read the ingredients in the little packets. So I always tell people to get the pure stevia. And I, the only place I find it is, you know, either online Whole Foods or Sprouts or a health food store. It's just be careful, which, you know, people are thinking, oh, it's stevia. It's in a packet. It, it's, it's good for me. And then when you look at the ingredients, it's got dextrose or fructose or some other sucrose in there. It's got other sugars with the stevia. Well, that's not pure stevia. It's not healthy for you. Okay. So I found the, I found the stevia. Um, and then the blend was for the brown sugar. And I, cause I did read too, that if you, if you take the sugar out completely, then the cookies aren't going to brown. You need a little bit of yeah. brown. So I figured, well, part of it, I'll use the blend just to give it so that it does, does do that. And so the family likes it. The cookies don't look the same. They don't flatten out. So I'm still adjusting that. Um, but it's, it's, it's a process and it's at least an attempt to get some of the sugar out. Cause you, you, um, I heard you interviewed once and you were talking about first off the number of calories that men and women should have during the day and the number of grams of sugar. Can you give us those numbers? Yeah, if you're a female, it should be about uh, 25 grams of sugar a day. Um, if you're a male, you know, 30 to 35 grams of sugar per day. A Starbucks uh, foo-foo drink, what I call them, with everything in it, can have as much as 75 cal or grams of sugar in it. Wow. So some of the Starbucks drinks have three times more grams of sugar than what you need in a whole day in one drink and people are having two or three of those in a day wow so yeah the grams of sugar the other thing is calories um you only need about 1250 to 1500 calories if you're a female about 1750 calories to 2000 calories if you're a male unless you're physically active you're working out a lot or you're you know exercising a lot then you need more calories or if you're a pregnant, you know, woman, then you need more calories. So you got to be careful on, you know, what unit of measurement you're looking at and how you're using it. Because not everything's, you know, created equal, especially with calories. You, you um, talked a lot about portion control. And in the book, I forget which rule it was. Oh, it's number five. Eat smaller portions. Um, talk about the plate. I find this very interesting about plate size and color. Yeah, in the 1900s, the average um, dinner plate, the size was nine inches in diameter. Today, it's 12 inches. If you go to a restaurant, it's 13 to 15 inches. So way it's been supersized without you realizing it. Yet in Europe, except for the UK, it's still nine inches in diameter for a dinner size plate. So I always tell people, use a salad plate. It's an optical illusion. If you put the exact same amount of food on a salad plate as a dinner plate, on the salad plate, looks like you're getting a lot more. On the dinner plate, looks like you're getting a lot less. So you tend to overconsume and eat more. 
The other thing is you want to use a blue plate whenever possible because blue is an appetite suppressant. You're adding yellow, our appetite stimulants. That's why the fast foods like McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, Carl's Jr., all use Denny's, all use red and yellow in their marketing. That was really interesting. And it's funny because this past year, I didn't buy blue plates for my dining plates. And, uh, yeah. and, they're, and they're beautiful. And, uh, but I do find, too, that my mom's kitchen is an older kitchen. Uh, they're smaller. The, the cabinets are smaller. And the big plates don't really fit. So we've upsized our cabinets to fit our plates. Exactly. When it should be just the opposite. So small portions. And then when you have a small portion, you'll eat slower, which is one of the rules also is to eat slower because we all tend to eat fast now. Um, I used to be a very fast eater. And a lot of times we're distracted when we're eating. We're working. Uh, we're at our computers, driving, watching TV. And you look down and the sandwich is gone or the snacks is gone. It's like, where did it go? Well, you ate it without realizing it. That's true. And what about going out to dinner? Because a lot of people are like, well, if I'm on a diet, then I can't go out. And and look at the sizes, the portion sizes when you go out now. What, yeah. What you there's two things you can do. Actually, there's a few more things, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of different examples of what you can do. One thing you can do is you can get a to-go plate right away, a to-go box, and cut your portion half and put half to go. So now you're getting two meals for the price of one. So you're saving money. The other thing is you can share with a friend or a spouse. Another thing is I met a lady who lost 125 pounds. And what she was saying to me was when she goes out to restaurants with friends, She'd always check the menu ahead of time online to see what they had so she knew what she was going to order. And I said, I don't even need to look at a menu. She says, well, how do you do that? I said, it's very simple. I tell them I'm on a restricted diet. I like to order whether it be grilled chicken or a steak or fish and a side of whatever it be, you know, steamed broccoli or green beans or whatever it is. Um, and that's it. And every place I've been, even in international, you know, different foreign countries, they always accommodate me. They're always like, oh, yeah, we have this. We can make it for you. No problem. It's easier. So you get to choose what you want to eat rather than them telling you what you can have. And they don't know why you're on a restricted diet. They don't know if you are food allergies or you want to lose weight or medical issue. They don't even care. All they want to know is they want to know how can they please you. I love that story that you told about um... – how did, how did you put it? What do a cheeseburger, a glass of wine, and a wedding cake wedding cake have in common? Tell me. Okay. So this is a story that I heard from Darren Hardy. So I want to give him the credit. And it's about making choices. So you're at a barbecue at a friend's house, and he's got the best, you know, Angus beef and all your favorite condiments and fresh baked buns. And he offers you a cheeseburger. And what do you do? Well, in this case, most people would say yes. However, you say no, because you're a vegetarian, you don't eat meat. It, decisions already made for you. At the same barbecue, your host is very gracious and he has his, your favorite wine there and he offers you a glass of wine. What do you do? Well, most people will say, okay, I'll enjoy the wine because it's my favorite wine and I'll indulge. Well, in this case, you're a pregnant female. So most pregnant females know that alcohol is bad. 
you don't drink alcohol. You just say, no, thank you, because the decision is made for you. Same thing, you're at a wedding and they have brought in this incredible cake baked by a renowned, you know, world-renowned baker. And everybody's oohing and eye, and someone offers you the piece of cake. And you have to politely say no. Most people would say they would indulge. However, this cake has nuts in it, and you're severely allergic to nuts. So if you had a piece of cake, you'd have a severe allergic reaction, even possible death. So your decision is made. So the whole point is you make a decision about certain foods, and you just don't eat them. It's not that you won't. You don't. And that's the difference. Well, and it's a mindset. And I, and I read somewhere, too, that it, and it's all those choices are between your ears. Yes. And when you make the decision, I mean, I don't drink and I haven't for years. And it's not because I was an alcoholic. It's because it was it was a personal choice and it was easy. I don't I don't drink. And so when I go out, it's not a question. You know, here, have a glass of wine or do a toast. I'll toast with a glass of ginger ale or water or something. Um, as I've gotten older, eating beef doesn't really settle well in my stomach. So I don't eat a lot of beef and my husband doesn't like fish. I don't eat a lot of fish, probably could eat more fish. Um, I'll have a little bit of chicken. Uh, we found like you as spouse is you, you eat to fuel your body. It's not, I don't eat food because I need a lot of it or like we have friends that'll go out and first they'll spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on meals at expensive restaurants and it's just overindulging. It's because they say they think they like it. And CJ and I are going, well, we'll go to the Italian restaurant once every couple of weeks and we'll get something and we'll split that and then bring a third of it home, which is what you're saying. So now we have two meals for the two of us out of one huge portion. Yeah. Uh, but I've, I, I don't, I don't eat to, how did I put it? I eat to live. I don't live to eat. That's what it is. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing is what I tell people is if something is healthy for you and you don't like it, don't eat it. Brussels sprouts. Exactly. I won't touch Brussels sprouts. Uh, I love broccoli. Some people don't, you know? So again, if it's healthy and you don't like it, don't eat it. Eat the things that are healthy that you enjoy because then you'll eat them and you'll want to eat them. Well, otherwise you feel like you're being deprived. And that's what exactly. people like about diets is because you can't, you can't, you can't. Your yeah. shift is different. Exactly. I, I want to shift it so that you focus on what you do enjoy and that you should have as opposed to what you can't have because what you focus on expands. So if you're focusing on enjoying the apple or, you know, piece of fruit or a vegetable or a certain meal, that's what you're going to think about as opposed to, oh, I'm not able to have the Hershey bar, or the Snickers bar, or the soda or diet soda, or the M&Ms or everybody else is enjoying. Why aren't I? I'm depriving myself. No, it's a choice. And I tell people more for you or it looks better on you than me. Or one of my favorites is better in the trash than on my ass. So, you know, it's a little sayings like that. Just make it a little fun. And just it's a mindset. It's a certain things. And when you make those healthy choices, you feel better. And it gets to be a habit where it becomes easier and easier. So now you don't even think about it. As I said, I haven't thought about M&Ms since July of 2016. Haven't touched them. And I won't. Same thing with pretty much potato chips or, or Oreo cookies or anything like that. Things I used to enjoy. And I want to get back to one thing you talked about with the diabetes. Yeah. There's a difference between type 1 and type 2. Mm-hmm. Um, type 1 is genetic. Uh, type 2 
is a lot of it's preventable and a lot of it's reversible. And type two diabetics have to be careful what they're eating. I had a client who was a type two diabetic and we were at a networking event before COVID and he ended up at a hospital week before and we were talking and he ordered a hamburger and French fries and coffee. And he started putting ketchup on the fries and his hamburger and part started putting in the artificial creamer in his coffee. And I said, you're a type two diabetic. And he goes, yeah. I said, well, why are you using ketchup? He goes, well, what's wrong with ketchup? I said, it's loaded with sugar. It's 60% sugar. He goes, oh, I didn't know that. And, and that's why he ended up in the hospital. And I said, that artificial creamer you're using is loaded with chemicals that you shouldn't have. And he goes, well, I don't know what's in there. I said, well, because he couldn't read the fine print. I said, I can read it. Here's what's in there. And he's, well, nobody told me. So this is where people have to learn to educate themselves mm -hmm. and find out what they should be eating and what they should avoid and reasons why. And just because a food is diabetic friendly doesn't mean it's healthy for you. Well, and in, in Lou's case, um, he knew all those things. And his way of managing was to, you know, eat a dozen cookies and then raise his insulin, the amount he was giving himself. And I'm like, well, that that wasn't, a, it was a choice. In my eyes, it was a very poor choice, uh, but it was his choice. And and he knew more than anybody about what he should have, could have. But he also then died at 55, 56. So it's something where it, like you had your wake up call. I mean, I've had times in my life where I've gotten the call and I've written a lot about the calls. And one of those calls was the day Lou died and he was on the West coast of Florida had gone traveling. And that morning woke up and looked at the guy beside him and said, here are the keys to my car. Um, call 911. I'm having a heart attack. And yeah. he was dead within a half an hour. So no matter how much he knew and, and I, and I like the way you said your doctor said, either lose the weight or get a new doctor. I always wondered why Lou's doctors never really gave him the straight skinny on lose that weight or you will die. It's like they wanted to be his friend. Well, again, it depends on the doctor. Um, Ours was I, a cardiologist. Uh, his heart was good. It was the rest of him. <laughs> was well, I, my wife and I were in Costa Rica a couple of years ago and I met a doctor on the beach who's there with his wife and we were talking and he was internal medicine family doctor and I was asking him questions about weight loss because I was interested in learning from him even though he was severely overweight because here's his medical doctor and he was saying that he had to lose 80 pounds to get a hip replacement because um, he was too fat and his orthopedic friend and doctor wasn't able to do the surgery. So he lost 80 pounds and he still had a hundred pounds to go, he said. And he was actually boasting and bragging about his patients being an average of three to 400 pounds. And I was very, you know, quizzical. I said, that makes no sense. You're medical. Why aren't you losing the weight yourself and, and advocating to your patients to be healthier? And he goes, well, when you get to my age, you know, it's not all about that. I said, well, we're about the same age. And he, he looked at me and he goes, no, we're not. I said, yeah, we are. And he goes, well, how, I said, how old are you? And he said, I'm 59. I said, oh, and he goes, how old are you? And at the time I was 63. I said, I'm 63. He says, what? I said, yeah. So <laughs> he just kind of shook his head, turned and walked away. And it was the last time I saw him. But that's the medical doctor. And in doing research for the books, 
I learned that 60% of nurses are overweight. And these are the people providing medical care for us. So you got to be careful of the medical industry. There are a lot of good doctors, but then there's some that just don't care or don't know. And they'd rather prescribe a prescription for you and give you a pill than take the time and sit down and work with you and talk to you. I was fortunate. My doctor just came out and said, here, talk to, you know, Sherry, the office manager, she'll get you started. And she didn't believe I was going to do anything. Cause I said, well, can I start next week? Cause I'm going to Vegas this weekend. I know I won't be able to. And she says, yeah, sure. Why well, show up? And she goes, I didn't think you were going to show up. And then she didn't think I was going to do it. So I became the poster child because I wanted to prove her wrong. And I did everything I was supposed to exactly as, as I was supposed to. For me, it was beneficial. And again, I was fortunate. I avoided the heart attack. I have friends that weren't so lucky. They had the heart attack. They had the stroke. They have type two diabetes. Um, they are having hip replacements, knee replacements. And, you know, I was telling you, I have one friend from high school that reached out to me for a novel that I wrote and she was going to go on the cabbage soup diet. I said, no, you're not. I'm going to work with you. Well, she lost 45 pounds in six months. Her goal was 35 pounds, but her body just kept going. And when we were talking, she goes, I guess I need an attitude adjustment. I said, why is that? And she goes, well, you're talking about all the trips you're doing with your wife and all the hiking you do and all the activities you're doing. She goes, you're living. I said, yeah. And she goes, I'm planning on dying. And we're the same age. She goes, I'm making you know plans. I said, yeah, you do need an attitude adjustment. And once she lost the weight, she has more energy. She feels better. And it's changed her life completely. And, you know, we've, we see on, the, on TV all the time the quick weight loss and then, you know, all those programs that you, you want to release that weight really quickly, um, lose it. And we, we all know when you lose something, you want to find it again, but those aren't, I'm not poo-pooing plans. At least people are trying, but they're spending a lot of money. And I heard you say once too, I think there's 50,000 books on Amazon about diet and fitness. At one time. Yes. David, how is your plan or your, your attitude adjustment here different? And because we didn't put the weight on overnight. Well, what I tell people is you didn't put the weight on overnight. You're not going to lose it overnight. And when they're telling you lose 10, 15, 20, 30 pounds guaranteed your first month, you may be able to do it. Number one, it's not healthy. Number two, it's not sustainable. So what I usually ask people is, would you like to weigh 24 to 48 pounds lighter by this time next year? And most people who need to lose weight or want to say, yeah, I could do that. That'd be great. Okay. Can you lose two, three, four pounds per month? Not a week per month. Most people say, yeah, I could do that. Okay, well, on average, if you lose two, three, four pounds per month for 12 months, because some months you'll lose more, some you'll lose less, that's 24 to 48 pounds lighter by this time next year. The problem is people want instant gratification. If they don't see immediate results, they don't realize their body is changing. And so there may be a week or two where you're not seeing the scale drop. And then they stop as opposed to being consistent and doing it for a long period of time. And that's where I advocate. It's a lifestyle. A diet is like a sprint. There's a finish line. And a lot of people, when they reach their goal, they revert back to their old eating habits. Where if you think of a lifestyle as a marathon, this is a marathon that just doesn't have a finish line. You just keep going and going and going. And so that's the difference is lifestyle versus diet. Now, diet has two different meanings. There's being on a diet, which means food restriction and attempting to reduce weight or the diet you eat, which is the food intake. So people get confused about the word diet. 
That's an interesting, I hadn't, I hadn't looked at it that way, but that is true. And, uh, and I, you know, like I said, I saw Lou and, and I heard you said one time that most of us over a lifetime are on 126 diets. 126 different diets. The average person will attempt four to five diets each year. The other thing is if these weight loss programs and diets worked, these companies would be out of business after a few years and we all be healthier and thinner. Um, when I was on my weight loss journey in 2016, the weight loss industry was $61 billion each year. Today, it's $72 billion each year. Well, that means more and more people are going on diets because they have to repeat them. They're not losing the weight. If they do, they don't keep it off. And that's unhealthy. And, and that's the difference. And so when you think of it that way, then you have to realize that, you know, it's a, it's a choice of making your lifestyle. And the, if I could, I'd like to go through those nine golden rules real yeah. fast for the audience. Sure, go ahead. First one is drink more water. Cause as I mentioned, our bodies are 60 to 70% water. And it's pure water, not the flavored water or the artificial water, you know, that they sell in the, the stores. Uh, the second one is to avoid the processed food and manufactured foods. Third one is to eat the real whole holistic foods. Fourth one is to eat slower. Number five, as you said, eat small portions. Number six is to get adequate sleep. You need at least seven to eight hours of quality sleep. Uh, they find if you're sleep deprived, you consume an extra 500 calories the next day. Um, the next one is to rest to digest. That gives your body time to digest the food. I recommend 12 hours or more. Some advocate 14, some 16, some advocate 18 hours. Each expert has a different opinion and different views. Um, the way I look at it is if you stop eating three hours before you go to bed and you go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, so you stop eating at seven o'clock and you get up at six or seven o'clock in the morning and you drink a glass of water right away um, and you don't have your first meal you know, for an hour or two later, that's a 12 hour intermittent fast basically. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one is to think positive because we talked about the negative and the last one is to walk each day, which is physical activity. And walking is one of the best exercises you can do. And if you're upright and able to move forward, you can walk. Perfect. And, and I'm going to plug the book. Stop dieting, start thinning. It's easy to read. I sat there with a highlighter and every page is got, has got yellow on it. Um, a lot of it I already do. I got to the last end and it was like walk. My husband and I, when we were first dating, we walked all the time. Over the last 10 years, we're not walking as much. We're supposed to have a date tonight. It's purposeful. We have to be purposeful in all nine steps. For me, exactly. it's the water. I have the big, my my cup is actually bright red. It should be bright blue. Uh, it's bright red and I fill it up. It's 24 ounces. Um, but the little post-it notes, I'm thinking I need to be putting post-it notes on my refrigerator to keep track of how many times I refill my cup because I forget after two or three, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've had so much water today. But it's Well, exactly. And I had one client that thought she was drinking a lot of water. And then she found half bottles of water, you know, different places at her office. And, it, and she realized she wasn't drinking as much as she thought. Well, I had, you know, four bottles or six bottles of water. And then half of them are still full. Well, you only had half. So, you know, keep track of the water. Um, make it a, a decision. The easiest way to drink more water 
like I said, I drink 20 ounces first thing in the morning when you get up. So if you have a glass or two when you first get up, have another glass or two mid-morning, another glass or two with your lunch, another glass or two mid-afternoon, a glass or two with dinner, and you've got your eight ounces, you know, eight, eight ounce glasses of water each day right there. And your exercise is running me into the bathroom. Or well, water. Yeah. <laughs> your body gets used to it after a while, so you're not going to the bathroom as much. Initially, you will be going to the bathroom a lot, but after a while, your body gets used to it and it's easier. It's just getting started and keep going. And that's that's it. Just do it. Just start. Yeah, I, I like, um, I think it's Zig Ziglar who says, you don't have to be uh, great to start, but you have to start to be great. Exactly. Well, David... I could talk to you for hours and I know our, our, this is, I always have my podcast be the fastest hour on town. It is so much fun. How can people contact you? Uh, they can reach me at uh, www.im, the letter M, thinning, T-H-I-N-N-I-N-G.com. So that's imthinning.com. Or I'm on Facebook. You know, my last name is spelled M-E-D-A-N-S-K-Y. You actually have a support and you have a group on Facebook. I do. And it's free to join. It's called live your I'm thinning life. And I post on there every day and I encourage members to post their successes or challenges. Um, it's not to, you know, sell anything or, you know, get you to buy anything. It's just to give you as much information as possible, keep you motivated, keep you inspired, give you tips. Uh, one tip that I'll give to the audience if you're hungry, brush your teeth because research found that if you have a clean mouth, it'll suppress your appetite. And have a glass of water. Have a glass of water. Water, you know, I have a lot of people that I tell that to and they'll call me and I say, you know, I was thinking about having this or that, whatever. And I remember you saying have water and I drink the water and it does work. Okay, last thing, cold water, warm water. Does it matter? Yes, room temperature. Because? Because they found that it's healthier. Um, ice water, I don't drink ice water. Um, they find that it's detrimental to your health. The only time you may want to drink ice water is if you've been exercising a lot. Then they find that the ice water will help cool your body down. But other than that, you can drink warm water or uh, room temperature water a lot quicker. Yeah. And people who drink ice water, they're drinking only half as much because your glass is half ice half the time. That's true. And I always get cold. <laughs> well, you get the brain freeze too, if you drink it too fast. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I will go to restaurants and I'll drink the glass of water. They drink real quick and the server will come by and I'll say, yeah, I had a hole in my glass and it'll look like what? And I said, no, I just need another glass of water. And sometimes I make it a game. And after I did that twice at the cheesecake factory, the server came back with a 20 ounce stein, you know, full of water. And she was, there you go. And I said, oh, I love a challenge. And people think, you eat the Cheesecake Factory? I said, yeah, they have the Asian lettuce wraps, which are 450 calories, fills me up. And it's funny because my wife is very thin and she'll order the nachos when they bring it out. They always want to give her my food. And I said, no. And they're like, is that enough for you? I said, yeah. If you eat it slow and you enjoy it, it's plenty. Right. Absolutely. Well, I so appreciate what you do. I resonate. <laughs> my story resonates with yours. And, uh, you know, a lot of us have lost the 50 pounds and it's the ones that have lost it and kept it off that have the mindset change. Um, and, and it's just a matter of sharing it. And 
some people don't want to hear it. I have, you know, like my late husband, he didn't want to hear moderation or, you know, eat this way or whatever. He wanted to do it his way. And I, I let him. Um, and, you know, unfortunately the family is living the consequences, yeah. but I learned a lot from living with a diabetic. And, and I was fortunate because you asked if I had someone to support me. My wife was great. Uh, she's very thin and eats very little, but when I was on my restricted eating, um, she would eat what I ate, just had a little bit more and some, you know, extra stuff. But for the most part, we, you know, she just said, you, you do what you need to do. Well, it's a family thing. And, and, you know, our grandchildren will be learning from us. Our children are teaching their kids. Um, and my kids now, when I, when I do my stress baking and I, have one cookie to make sure that they're good, which they always are. Uh, I'll send them off to the kids. And my oldest just turned 36. And he said, mom, cool it on the cookies. I don't want to be a diabetic like dad. I said, that a boy, you know? Yeah, exactly. So it's choices and we have to make those choices. Absolutely. And we're, we're starting to thin. We're not going on a diet. So right. David Medansky, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your books. I've thoroughly enjoyed them and I, I'm going to give one away or two away. You sent me a, a couple of them. I'm going to give them away for my clients who are watching this podcast uh, and we'll get them in touch with you. So thank you so much to you and your family. I appreciate you. And uh, I'm on your Facebook group and I'm going to, I saw the challenge. So I'm going to start writing. Awesome. Thank you, Debbie. I really do appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. You have a great day now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye, David.